0: episode we're talking about the film CODA which stands for Child of Deaf Adults and I'm joined by two amazing women Charlotte Little and Terry Devine who are working to raise awareness
1: for deaf audiences. Here's Charlotte talking about CODA. I think empathy is a huge part of this film. It's showing a light on deaf characters. It's not like they're not defined by it, just simply a part of who they are. I also chat to Coda's writer director, Sean Hader, and star Amelia Jones.
0: Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of
1: mine,
2: and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a
3: spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve?
0: Hello and welcome to Girls on Film. I'm Anna Smith and this episode is in partnership with Apple TV+, Plus, who are currently showing Coda, a heartwarming coming-of-age comedy drama that we first featured in episode 90. Coda has been long-listed for seven British Academy Film Awards in 2022 for Best Film and for Director, Adapted Screenplay, for Leading Actress and Supporting Actor and for Casting and for Sound. Set in Gloucester, Massachusetts, the film centers around 17-year-old Ruby Rossi, the only hearing member of her deaf family. She's known as a coda, a child of deaf adults.
2: Yeah.
1: You're the girl with the deaf family? Yeah. yeah.
2: And you sing. Interesting. Something's got a hold on me here. Yeah. What are you doing next year? Working with my family. Let me tell you now, I've got a feeling. I feel so strange. Everything
4: about me seems to have changed. I've been coaching for Berkeley College
2: of Music. I can help you get a scholarship. I won't let go.
0: Next up, I'm pleased to welcome the writer director of Coda, Sean Hader, and leading actress Amelia Jones, who plays the teenage Coda. Amelia and Sean, welcome back to Girls on Film. It is just fantastic to have you with us. Thank you for having us. Well, I say massive congratulations. When we last spoke, Coda had just come out, and now so many awards, so many nominations, so many long lists. The public are loving it.
3: How are you both feeling? Sean, you first. It's amazing. I think, you know, it's unexpected. I mean, not that not that it wasn't a dream for this to happen, but I think it's, it is unexpected. And I think we were a small indie movie and to be in the conversation with all of these other films, with incredible filmmakers who, you know, when you suddenly see yourself on a list next to Steven Spielberg and Denis Villeneuve and Jane Campion, and you're like, wait, these are my heroes. Um, so I think, I'm sure Amelia feels the same way. It's just been incredible. And I think, you know... The process of making this film was was pretty life changing, I think, for everybody involved and particularly Amelia and I. And so in a way, the making of the film was a journey that was very fulfilling in and of itself. But now this has become another journey that we're on. And and that's been really rewarding and beautiful. Well, that's
2: wonderful. Amelia. I mean, Sean kind of said everything uh, perfectly. It's just so lovely. You know, we premiered Sundance a year ago and it's so rare that a film is still being talked about a year later and then people are still watching it. And, And as Sean said, it was such a special movie to make and Sean and I worked so hard for such a long time on the movie, so... It's so nice that, that people are, are being so, so lovely. You can only hope. Um, and it's also really great because we all get on so well. So it's an excuse to keep, <laughs> you know, connecting and, and, and meeting up and promoting the movie. So I'm so grateful that everybody's been so nice about it.
0: Well, you mentioned, obviously, you've done a lot of press tours. You've been doing a year of interviews or so. Are there any questions you haven't been asked enough or at all? Any areas you'd like to talk about?
3: The platform is yours. Sean, you first. That's so interesting. I actually was thinking about it because I recently did uh, a panel like with my production designer. And it's interesting because I think we, we've had so many conversations because, you know, the movie is authentically cast with deaf actors. I think the ASL of it all, what it's like to write a script in ASL, what it's like to sort of Amelia's learning of the language, I think the way that we worked on set with the cast... But at the same time, it was like an incredibly challenging movie to pull off in terms of production-wise and and my collaborations with my cinematographer and my production designer and the the process and editorial to find the movie and the edit and what that was like. So I think it's been some of those conversations that have been interesting that that now are starting to happen because at first I think it, it was so revolutionary to people to have, you know, Uh, three deaf actors as the lead of the movie. And certainly it is the thing that we want to talk about and is a very important element of the movie. But I think, you know, there were many other things that went into the process as well that I think are also interesting to talk about in conversation.
0: Well, Amelia, one of the things I've loved talking to you about in the past, when I last saw you, in fact, you you sang on stage in Soho and that was an amazing surprise for the audience there. But as we discussed, singing is just one of many things that you trained up in for this film. I know Sian has said this has been talked about a lot, but I'm sure some of our listeners will be curious to know. Can you list all the skills that you either learned or honed
2: further for this? Oh my goodness, okay. Um, Sign language, singing, fishing because there's actually a lot to learn in that area because when i was doing the scene with troy and daniel and the fishing officials going into that scene i had to learn my lines signed and spoken i had to learn troy's lines signed and spoken daniel's lines signed and spoken the fishing officials lines signed and spoken because say if i learned troy's line in sign language you know i can't sign it all in one go i have to wait you know, or when I'm speaking, for instance, and Troy's signing, I have to know exactly what he's signing in order to speak, not, you know, say say something before he says it. So it was really technical and I really kind of didn't think going into Coda that that was going to be a skill that I'd have to learn. But luckily on our set, all the interpreters were coders. So it meant that Jack really helped me with that scene, Marley's interpreter. He kind of pulled me to one side with Ann Tomasetti, our ASL director, and he was he was just kind of giving me pointers and giving me examples and things. So that was, yeah, that was a skill that I, I didn't really think about. I guess the accent But I think that kind of, because I had so much to work on with the singing and the sign language, I didn't even really think about the accent. It was kind of like really low down on the list of things I had to worry about. Um, And I think also because Sean's such an incredible director and, you know, she wanted everything to be authentic. We went out on the fishing boat for two weeks in rehearsals. And I think being around the fishermen in Gloucester kind of, you know, got my ear into the accent and
3: that really helped.
2: That is an impressive list.
3: I mean, Amelia was like quarry jumping. I think there were, I mean, there were all sorts of, like at one point we were laughing that I was like, I should just make, like put a horse in the script and make her like horseback ride. And (laughs) there should be a rollerblading scene and... (laughs) Maybe ice skating. Um, No, we were, I mean, she, she learned so many different things. I mean, I think the other thing is that everybody is so impressed by all of the things that Amelia learned for the movie, which I think are all very impressive things. The thing that was most impressive to me is how much Amelia understood the tensions that were pulling on this character and was able to unlock the idea that, you know, who Ruby was at home versus who she was at school and how those were almost two different people. And the kind of inner turmoil of somebody who, yes, feels like there's, you know, in a way, a crushing responsibility around feeling like she has to facilitate communication for her family. And yet that same thing that, can feel like a burden, can also feel like an immense source of pride, can be so wrapped up in your confidence and and how you feel in the world and and the importance you feel you have within your family. And what I love about what Amelia did in her performance is I, I just, I felt this kid that was like torn being pulled in so many directions And just trying to navigate like who she was as these different tensions were pulling on her. And so in a way, I think I just want to say about Amelia that that there's been so much focus on kind of you learned all these things and she did. But the other thing is just navigating this character's emotional life that was so specific and nuanced and Such a tightrope walk to find her. And I think Amelia did that so well. I think she deeply just connected with who Ruby was and and all the different things that were pulling on her. Amelia, do you want to speak a bit about that?
0: Because obviously I agree as a viewer that you did that beautifully. But in terms of the way that you approached it... How did you do that?
2: Well, I think Sean casting authentically and actually casting a seventeen-year-old for seventeen—it's very rare. It rarely happens. I remember I would always lose it out to the older girls and kind of be really annoyed. But I—I I think the camera picks up on this purity of youth that you just can't fake. And uh, I was really grateful that Sean took a risk because I was seventeen, and I had a lot to do. It could have been a disaster for sure, but because Sean kind of had my back and and surrounded herself with people that were you know in the deaf community, and so then that surrounded me with people in the deaf community and I, I learned so much and we all we both yeah immersed ourselves and although all the skills were hard, I guess navigating the character kind of came naturally because I trained for nine months with the singing and sign language. I was kind of living and breathing this character and, and, and the things that she faces in life. And then, yeah, I guess living in Gloucester, I worked so hard and, and, you know, we didn't know anyone in Gloucester but each other. So on the weekends when I wasn't in lessons, I we would all go and watch the football and so we kind of were a family and I get so protective <laughs> with Marley, Troy and Daniel. Like, I love them beyond belief and we kind of just all became our characters and then everything kind of fell into place, I guess.
0: You really are such a convincing and lovely family on screen and it is. I think that's one of the greatest joys of the film for me is seeing the connection between all the family members and how real that feels Sean, how important for you was the casting process? In that and the kind of conversations you had with the actors, I mean, we're all agreed it was incredibly important to have deaf actors in those roles. But beyond that, what were you looking from them as actors?
3: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just important to me to have deaf actors. I needed deaf actors that embodied these characters. So it wasn't just you know I need a fifty-year-old deaf guy to to play Frank. I needed a guy who <laughs> felt like he'd been out on a fishing boat since he was a kid and felt like the had that rough quality of those. Gloucester guys who I knew. I grew up going there every summer. I I knew that community really well. There's such a specific quality. Even with Leo, there is, on one hand, the emotional life of the character. You know, you have this guy who's really got a chip on his shoulder. He's pretty angry at, at being kind of pushed out as the older brother and and not respected in the way he should be in his family. And he can kind of see the dysfunction of this family and their codependency, and he's really frustrated by it. So I needed someone that got that on that level. I also needed a guy who looked like he'd be wearing sports socks and Nike sandals and, <laughs> you know, out on, on his fishing boat flipping through Tinder. It's like, there's a, there's an essence that you're looking for in people as well, right? You know, I mean, Amelia... Her acting was incredible, but I also, there was a quality to Amelia. There's a toughness to Amelia that when I saw her, I was like, Oh, she can handle herself on a fishing boat. She would not be thrown by being out there with those guys. And the truth is she wasn't like we went out fishing and, and Amelia was with a bunch of local Gloucester fishermen who were a rough bunch <laughs> and she held her own and she could make dirty jokes along with them and didn't bat an eye when they were sort of testing her and telling her to put pull the guts out of the fish with her hands and she just did it. And so I think when you're casting, you're looking for something kind of ephemeral from your actors that that is in line with the character, an essence, you know, that feels right. And then you're also looking for chemistry. And in this case, this movie was about a family and was going to live or die off you falling in love with this family and believing that this was a real family. And so it was even more important, I think, than in most things because there wasn't, you know, we didn't have big themes going on other than just like, you know, people falling in love with these four people and the connection and love that they had. So on one hand, I think it was a little calculated in that I knew like Marley and Troy had a lot of admiration for each other. They'd known each other for a long time. I don't know if they'd ever worked together, but they'd known each other for years Troy and Daniel had played father and son before and had been on Broadway together, actually. And so they had kind of a history doing theater together. I think Daniel and Marley had worked together before. So there was kind of some connection that had already been made. Amelia was really the outsider. She was the wild card where I was like, I don't know how this is going to work. And I think so much of it came just from... Amelia came in so game and so determined to not use an interpreter, to sign, to be a sponge and absorb as much as she could and really hungry to learn all about deaf culture because there were mannerisms that needed to be picked up that weren't just the language. It was like when when you need someone's attention, you sort of lean over and wave in their face. And I mean, both of us have talked about like after the movie finished, we were sort of, you know, pointing at people as we talked about them and, and waving and, you know, I would wave in my husband's face when I wanted his attention. He's like, what are you doing? I'm sitting here. Why are you waving in my face? But I think there were elements to deaf culture that when you start hanging out with deaf people a lot, you you pick up on them and they become part of like your lexicon of, of how you communicate. And the way that these guys bonded was so powerful. I think it was helped by the fact that we had rehearsal and time with each other, but it was also just that these were wonderful people. Like, I think lifelong friendships came out of this film and that's something you can't always count on and and I can't fully give myself credit for. It was something that happened. And, And there were powerful emotions, I think, happening on screen where at times, you know, the scene on the truck that everyone talks about between Amelia and Troy, you know, it's a scene between Ruby and Frank. It also felt like a scene between Amelia and Troy. Um, when we were on set and when we were filming, because I think at that point, those guys had such a powerful bond with each other. There was something else going on that transcended the characters and and became about people connecting. And I think you can feel that on screen.
0: Let's talk a bit about that scene. Um, Amelia, actually, I want to turn the tables because Sean's spoken beautifully about your qualities as an actress, and you've touched a little bit on Sean's directing, but I'd like to know more if you could explain what Sean does in a scene like that
2: to aid you and her style as a director. Sean is the most phenomenal director, and I'm not just saying that because you're on the Zoom, Sean, but she is so perceptive and that scene was so important and we all knew it was so important. And you know what it's like with independent movie making. It's the last scene of the day and you have 20 minutes and you've suddenly got to get this amazing scene in 20 minutes and the producers are kind of standing there waiting and it's also it's very stressful the last scene of the day in independent movie making. But what Sean is so amazing at is she knows exactly what she wants. And she knew that Troy and I were so close. You know, he has a a Coda daughter the same age as me. And I was missing my dad. I hadn't seen him for a year because I was working. And we kind of fell into this father-daughter bond. That scene, we were trying to figure out a way in which Troy could really feel the vibrations without it looking like he was kind of strangling me. And we were trying to, and we were racing against time. And it was quite stressful. And Troy kind of pulled away from me when we were trying to figure it out. And he said, i give anything to hear you sing right now and he kind of folded me into one of his hugs and we just kind of sat there for a second and I know that Sean kind of saw that and she was cross um, covering the scene because she's amazing and she didn't want to do Troy's coverage and then turn around do my coverage because we had this kind of emotion there and after Troy said that to me I felt so emotional because I was so close to him and after he hugged me and Sean kind of saw that because straight after that she said action and then we just did that scene and it was so magical and Oh, yeah, I, I love Troy Beyond Belief, and I think he's an absolutely incredible actor. I will go where you lead, always there in time of need. And when I lose my will, you'll be there to push me up the hill. that's no, no looking back. Enough you
0: all, all I'm excited to watch that scene again knowing that and having that in my mind it's it makes it even more powerful and moving and and Sean, what does it feel like in that magic moment where you can just see what's happening in front of you
3: yeah I mean there is something that happened for me that in a way, like, what the scene was about changed for me. I think when I wrote the scene, in a way, there was almost, like, a little bit of a hearing person gaze of, oh, is this sort of, like, a magical transference of music that happens? Like, in a way, Ruby sings, and, and, and he's there, and he sort of gets what music is, or gets, you know, and it's interesting with Troy, because Troy has been deaf since birth. He's completely deaf. He has no experience of music, really, Troy as a person, and we would sort of laugh about it, you know, when we were on set and he. Um, and in that moment, as we were working, as Amelia said, and and they were working together, and we were trying to find a place on Amelia's neck where Troy could feel something and feel the vibrations. And he was saying, "No, I'm not getting anything. You know, I'm actually not feeling anything." And so then we said, "Well, this is a project now, like." you know, and I think I said, Amelia, you have to give it to him. If you have to sing louder, if you have to really project and give it to him, you give it to him. And Troy, you have to find it. If you need to move your hands around her neck and you need to keep working, but you guys have to work as a team and you have to make this happen. And my favorite moment of that scene is at the end where Amelia gives him, you know, Ruby gives him this look like, did you get it? You know, did you get anything? And he kind of gives her this like, slight shrug nod it's almost like not really but it doesn't matter you know like he he doesn't fully go like yes thank you i i got it, it and it, and you realize that it's not it's not a scene about frank suddenly getting what music is in that moment it's a scene about a father trying to connect with his daughter and a daughter trying to connect with her father and and crossing two people who are very different trying to understand each other. And what I loved about what my two actors did in that moment is they worked to give it to each other. And you can feel that collaboration. You can feel that teamwork of them trying to do it. And that is what is so emotional to me. And I so I, I love that as a director when like in the course of shooting, you're sort of having an awakening about the meaning of the scene as you're watching it. And, and it's a sense of discovery, I think, not only for your actor's but for for me as a as a filmmaker. Thank you so much for
0: describing it like that. It's, that was so vivid. It's wonderful. Um Amelia, I'm not going to ask Sean this because it's perhaps too personal, but it's still shocking to us and girls on film how few women have been nominated in the director category generally speaking. I feel like maybe finally people are waking up to challenge the assumption that a great director looks like a white man. I mean, how do you feel from that as a young person coming into the industry now? Does that feel like that that is finally
2: shifting. As a young person kind of, you know, coming into the industry, I hope that most of the kind of substantial roles that I've done have been women directors, female directors. And I'm hoping that that kind of means that the signs are slightly changing. And I know that a lot of, you know, amazing actors before me have kind of advocated for people of my generation, and people coming into the industry. And for that, I'm, I'm so grateful. There's still a lot of work to be done, but considering half of my substantial roles have been with women directors and it's, I haven't been looking for it, it's kind of come to me, it makes me hopeful. That feels encouraging. Shani, are you optimistic
0: about
3: the future and representation behind the camera? I am. And then I see like the actual data and it always feels shocking to me. I mean, I, I've i given a lot of interviews about this recently where people say, you know, do you feel it changing And I feel that I do, you know, and I've said, yes, I I do feel that it's changing. And then you see a study come out where like, it's 17% of the top films that are out now are women. And you're kind of like, really? Like that feels like we're going backwards. So, you know, I think it's changing in television more than it's changing in film right now. I have noticed that TV, you know, when I first started directing TV, I remember being like the only woman director in a season and going, oh wow, I'm the first female director that they've had. And so it felt like more of a novelty. And now I think those, I've watched a balance happen with episodic directing in television. I think for some reason with features, I haven't seen it shift as radically. And I, I don't know if it's because the financing element that, you know, especially with independent film, you are going around and you're saying, hey, you need to place a $5 million bet on me and that I'm going to, get you your money back and I'm going to deliver on that. And I don't know if it's that financiers are less likely to back a female director or studios. So I don't know. I do feel optimistic. And then and then I see like actual data and reports that come out and I feel incredibly bummed out that I'm like, wait, this change that I think I'm feeling maybe isn't happening as quickly as it seems to be.
2: I will say that with Code, I felt very proud and, and honored to be a part of it because, you know, this movie was being led by... Sean, and she wrote and directed it and she's the strongest director I've ever worked with and we also had a lot of female heads of department which was rare for me I'd never worked with a female DOP I'd, I'd never worked with kind of mo- mostly female the female production designer costume makeup hair, and it felt really cool you know because I was 17 I was young and I was kind of looking up to all these amazing strong women and yeah I felt very lucky that Coda was like
3: that I think that's an important point that Amelia brings up because I do see it ripple through. I mean, my first feature Tallulah, I had all female heads of department as well. I don't even think that was a conscious choice. I remember giving interviews and everyone's like, Oh, look, you hired a female DP and you hired a female, you know? And I was like, I didn't even think about it. I just hired people, artists that I was interested in working with. Um, And so, and the same is true for code. I do think as there are more women directors put in positions of power, they do hire more women as well. And so then you end up with this trickle-down effect of having, you know, yes, women cinematographers have more work and and all of that. So I think it does affect your entire crew base and hiring process.
0: Definitely. It's so progress, but I agree. I mean, statistically, studies have shown exactly that, that women hire more women, you know, or just more diversity in general, which is so important. Um, now, next, we're going to be speaking to a coder and um, a woman who is partially deaf, um, and both of whom love the film. Before we go on to them, I wanted to ask you both what kind of reactions you've had specifically from those two communities. Um, Amelia?
2: I've had some lovely conversations with coders after screenings. I had an amazing conversation with a coder after a Santa Barbara screening. And I think going into this, you know, i, I knew that I was representing a community that I didn't belong to. And so I I did speak to some coders before some in the UK and some in America just before flying out because I knew that I, you know, wanted to kind of represent their story accurately And then after finishing filming and, you know, you can only hope when you've worked so hard that you've kind of done it justice. And then speaking to coders after the Q and A's, it's been so lovely because they've kind of come up to me and said, thank you. And the woman after Santa Barbara was crying and she just gave me the biggest hug and didn't say anything, but she didn't need to say anything. And I kind of got emotional. And it's, it's just so lovely when people enjoy the movie, but when they're actually a coder or if they're deaf, I spoke to a lovely group of deaf people in London. And I've actually got myself a British sign language coach now too. So I'm going to try and learn both. Oh, congrats.
0: <laughs> That's progress since I last spoke to you. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And so
2: we've, we've been texting and um, we're going to FaceTime and he's going to give me lessons, but they were also just so so kind of grateful that they could all sit there and watch and laugh at the same jokes and Troy said this in q and As too it's they've all kind of sat there and laughed at the same jokes that the hearing people next to them are laughing at and suddenly there's no divide there's no wall and everyone's just enjoying a love letter to family and, and I love that I really really do I, I love that and I feel so grateful that Coda has made people feel
3: that's lovely thank you Sean I mean, it's similar to Amelia. I think the most powerful moments have been, you know, I was at my child's school and I was dropping them off for school. And it was the first day of kindergarten for my son. And there was um, a deaf woman there and she was signing with her husband. And I could sort of, (laughs) when you know sign, it's sort of weird because then you're sort of eavesdropping and you don't want to (laughs) like reveal that you know sign. You're like kind of eavesdropping on this conversation. And anyway, she was talking about being nervous, you know, about her, her daughter and she couldn't see her anymore. And she just felt weird because now with COVID, you can't enter with them and deliver them to kindergarten. So it's a little bit intense to drop them off at the fence and walk them, watch them walk away. And anyway, I think I she looked over at me and I sort of felt embarrassed that I was watching her. And then I signed, you know, well, I'm nervous too and I can't see my kid as well. And and we just started chatting. and And she said, how do you know you know, how do you know, sign? And, and I told her that I directed this film, Coda. And when I said that, she screamed and was so excited. And and she just said that she just hasn't seen her language on screen, you know, and she hasn't seen her culture on screen like that. And her daughter is a Coda. And even for her daughter, knowing that she's five and there's going to be a movie out there where people even understand what that word Coda is, is a big deal. So I think it's that. I think there's a huge power in feeling seen and putting the language on screen. And also choices we made about how we put the language on screen. I think in a lot of films that represent um, deaf characters and even that have ASL in them, that people's hands are cut off. You know, you're, you're in close up and you don't see all of the lines on camera and I think it was very important to me with my DP to make an effort to really film the language and and also in my edit to make sure that all of the lines are on screen so when you're watching the language it is being fully honored and I think those are the details that definitely people in the deaf community pick up on that a hearing audience might not even notice but when a deaf audience watches they they appreciate those details and go, you know, thank you for keeping all of the signs in frame. That's rarely done. And I think it's those moments where you feel like, okay, we 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 took the time and we made the effort and and, and it's being noticed by both communities. Hugely important. And do you know what I'm ashamed to say that I'd never I'd never thought about
0: that because obviously I don't understand sign language. So I never thought about the fact how important that framing is to get it in there. So congratulations on doing it so thoroughly and brilliantly and making a wonderfully entertaining heartwarming movie in the process and a feminist one may I add this is girls on film after all so thank you yes well that's always gonna I think
3: feminism is just like the base of my work like it's always (laughs) gonna always, gonna be a feminist it's always gonna be a feminist film and then we add other things on top of that but I you know and I think my hope is also just to speak to sort of the deaf community one more time it's like my hope is that this movie is the first of many I think this is one story and it's it's very hard to feel like one story can solve a problem of, you know, a lack of representation over decades. And so, you know, the best conversations I've had are with other deaf artists, be they actors or writers, or that CODA helped kick down the door a little bit. And the, and that that big sale at Sundance and sort of the response from kind of a commercial space of like, oh no, these stories can be viable. They can be for a wide wide audience they can be really entertaining and and have mass appeal sends a message, I think, in terms of greenlighting other projects with deaf creators, with deaf writers, with other deaf artists. So that's the biggest thing to me. I just want to be like the rock at the top of the hill that starts the avalanche. And so hopefully there's many more stories that get told because this movie did well. Amen to that. Totally agree. I really think it has
0: opened up a lot of opportunities and I'm excited to see what comes next, not just from you both, but from this area in general we're talking about of representation. So it's exciting times. Thank you both so much for coming back on Girls on Film. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for having us. It was fun. And I hope to speak to you again soon. Meantime, best of luck with Coda. Thank you. That was Coda writer-director Sean Hader and star Amelia Jones. Next, I'm joined by access consultant Charlotte Little. Being hard of hearing and partially deaf herself, Charlotte's work in the film industry includes advising cinemas, festivals, and other film organisations on access and inclusion for disabled and deaf audiences. Here to discuss CODA with her is Terry Devine, the Associate Director for Inclusion at the Royal National Institute for the Deaf. Terry and Charlotte, welcome to Girls on Film. I want to to hear from you both. Please introduce yourselves to the listeners. Charlotte, I'll come to you first, because you are a listener as well, aren't you?
1: Yeah, I am a very big fan. Uh, Hi, my name is Charlotte Little, and I work as an access consultant in the film exhibition sector.
4: Excellent. And Terry, tell us more about yourself. Hi, I'm Terry Devine. Uh, I'm Associate Director at RNID for Inclusion. Um, But I'm also a CODA, so I'm a child of deaf adults. Uh, So I've experienced a lot of what's happened in the film.
0: Well, that brings me to my next question. I mean, obviously we both got you on for a reason. This is a fantastic film and I'm assuming that it resonates with you both for different reasons. Terry, you just mentioned you're a coder. How did you relate to this story? I
4: found it very poignant, very heartwarming and a lot of the experiences, I had similar experiences, not exactly the same, obviously, but had similar experiences growing up. But every coder's different. We've all got different types of families, you know, so I had two profoundly deaf parents, one with voice and one without voice. Uh, but I also had four siblings who were all hearing. So there was five of us that could interpret. There wasn't it wasn't all reliant on one person. So all families are quite different in terms of being a coda.
0: Well, I want to come to you more in a minute about the specifics of that, but Charlotte, tell me how you related to CODA and what you what you thought of it broadly speaking.
1: So I'm deafblind and I was uh, born moderately deaf and I wear hearing aids. And whilst I don't know sign language, I think any deaf representation is just absolutely like amazing to me. I've ne- I never had that growing up. I wish there was more films like this uh, I could have seen growing up. I think it would have given me a very different relationship with my own deaf identity. So yeah, I, just, I was really excited to hear about this film and just to see more deaf representation in general. Well, I think it is a, it
0: is a step forward and it certainly feels like
1: progress. Um,
0: Terry, I want to come back to you because you mentioned, obviously, that every, everyone's different, but what kind of details did you feel they got really right that resonated with you as a child of deaf adults?
4: So some of the details that I feel they got was her journey, Ruby's journey, in terms of finding her own identity, and living between two worlds, you know. So actually the soundtrack of Both Sides Now is actually really apt in terms of looking at her own identity. So moving between the deaf world and the hearing world and trying to find her place in society, that that really resonated with me in terms of where she was going and what she was trying to do.
0: That's interesting. Charlotte, what aspects of this story were important to you in terms of getting the the sort of minutiae right and the facts right? Perhaps things, as you say, that have not
1: been shown really much before in mainstream media. I think the deaf and sign language-specific humour is an amazing element of this film. And I think also the sexuality, Um, you know, uh, Ruby's parents are so madly in love and can't uh, keep their hands off each other. And I think we don't get to see uh, many disabled or deaf characters being sexual, complicated characters. So that was a really important aspect for me. I totally agree. And it was really
0: funny. It was really human. And it wasn't just kind of stereotyping characters or, or, you know, making them be defined by their disability, right? Terry, you were nodding. Would you like to add to that? Or?
4: Yeah, that was really funny in terms of the behaviours. So deaf people saying language users are very visual. And actually the use of that visual humour really came across in the film. Uh, particularly the scene where the father's talking about the condom. You know, he compares it to putting a helmet over a, a gun, you know, and he's like, demonstrating how to do that physically in the film which is really, really funny. But there's some parts of the film which are funny, but actually quite inappropriate at certain points as well.
0: Do you want to expand on that when you say inappropriate?
4: Well, for example, when Ruby's interpreting for her parents at the doctor's at the start of the film, and the parents have got an STD, now that is completely inappropriate. Really, really funny, but completely inappropriate that you've got a child there actually interpreting in a situation like that.
0: Gosh, yeah, that's a hilarious scene, but like her face is like, Oh god, don't talk to me about my parents' sex life. But it's it's a very accessible way of getting a message across, isn't it? And Charlotte, tell me, what do you think about the fact that this this really does kind of shine a light on the lack of interpretation, the lack of deaf access in a lot of situations for the characters?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We see very important services such as going to the doctors, being in the court, meetings related to employment, and there's not any resources or interpretation. So I think it really shines the light on how where this family lives they just they have to rely on Ruby and they can't necessarily move forward because of the lack of deaf access in the area and also it shine the light on class as well because if you want to have an interpreter you have to have the finances as well so if you're financially uh, not in a place to be able to do that you're not going to be able to access these really vital services. That's a really good point about class
0: and, and financial situation that I do think you're right is, is tackled in this film. Terry, obviously, you know, when you were younger, going to school, your parents were deaf, and this is something that's touched on in the film again is, is the attitude of other kids and misconceptions. Did anything resonate with you there?
4: Not so much. It was very much, when you're growing up in that society, you don't realise how different you are from everybody else. You think everybody else is going through the same thing. It's, not, it's a norm for you. And actually, it's not until you get older, you start getting your own identity. And then you're thinking, hmm, other people don't do the same thing as me. I was in a fortunate position that people didn't make a fool of my parents. Not that I heard of, to be sure. But there were situations where I had to stand up for them when we were in shops or things like that. You know, I had to interpret them and stand up for them. So there were situations like that.
1: That's interesting. Charlotte, is there anything you wanted to add to that? I think empathy is a huge part of this film and this is a very specific story um, about very specific characters, it's not meant to represent the whole spectrum, but I think just showing a light on deaf characters, it, it's not like they're not defined by it, just simply a part of who they are um, and their beautiful relationships together and you know we see some really profound scenes like with uh, Ruby and her father and he—he's uh, she's singing to him Um, and that's just such a beautiful moment and I really hope people look at that and just see these relationships can still form and still be just as beautiful but just in a different way. That is a gorgeous scene and I feel like that's one
0: of the reasons he's long listed for a BAFTA, Troy Kutzer, because his performance is amazing in that and of course Amelia Jones who we're chatting to in this episode I think is is great and Terry how did you find her performance?
4: Absolutely fantastic and the fact that she sings so well and she's a beautiful singer and she sings to her father and the way that she does it is absolutely beautiful and one of the things that really impressed me about her performance was her signing. Her signing is phenomenal and she managed to do it, learn that in nine months which is actually really difficult to do. Not everybody can learn sign language as quickly as that. So from that aspect, it's absolutely tremendous in terms of what she's done.
0: And of course, we've got Marley Macklin, iconic actress, and Troy, both of whom are deaf. Charlotte, how important is it for actors with disabilities to be cast in these kind of roles?
1: I think it's a huge, huge part of, you know, when you go to the cinema, you want to see yourself on screen at some point. And I know myself, I never got that. Um, I think the first time I saw myself on screen was A Quiet Place, and I was 20 years old when that came out. Um, so seeing actresses like Miley Matlin and, and seeing more like even deaf women as well. Um, most of the time, if I saw a deaf character, there is a butt of the joke and they're usually men. So seeing, you know, deaf women on the screen, I think when you're sat there in the cinema and you see that, it's just such a special moment. And I think everyone wants to be able to, to experience that. So yes, I think it's pivotal. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you brought up women because we are girls on film, (laughs) after all.
0: Uh, And I was going to ask you both, actually, um, do you think what feminist aspects are there to this film? Terry, I'll come to you first.
4: Feminist aspects for me are the strength that she has in the field that she's working in. So she's working out in trawlers where it's mainly men that are there and working with the fish in that. And she's actually negotiating a price for, she's doing it with all these hardened men round about her. And she's negotiating the price for the fish and things like that. So it's really the strength of her her character and, you know, a real feminist move, isn't it? That she stands up to the men and says, this is what we should be getting. Everybody else is getting a different price than what you're offering us. No, no, that's not right. So there's a real feminist action there.
0: Yeah, she's a really strong character, I think, isn't she? And um, just and, and also she, she's not kind of sexualized. She's shown in a very naturalistic kind of way. She's just a, a, a normal teen, really. Charlotte, how did you feel about it from a feminist
1: perspective? I think the scene between Ruby and her mother is a very tender scene, and I think Jackie is kind of we think of her as this hardened character, you know, pageant girl, maybe a bit vain, and we see them have a very vulnerable very open conversation and, and you see the strength of their relationship. And, I, you know, even Marley Matlin's character saying, you know, she's happy that Ruby knows who she is and she's so brave. I think that's a wonderful scene and I think there is a very important moment in terms of their kind of arc in the story. I want to talk to you both a bit more about the work you do and disability on
0: film in general. But before that, is there anything anyone else wants to say about CODA?
4: Yeah, I mean, absolutely found it a really heartwarming film as well. But just want to remind people that it's set for a particular family and not all families are the same. Everybody's got different experiences and all deaf people have got different experiences.
1: That's interesting. Thank you, Terry. Charlotte, anything to add? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a simple formula. I think it's a digestible film. I think it's lovely and sweet. And I don't think every film with deafness or disability has to be radical or groundbreaking, but I completely agree with Terry. I would also like, you know, to point out the accessible release of this film. I think every uh, cinema screening of it had captions and that was really important. And yeah, I just hope this inspires people to seek out more stories about deafness. I hope there's more films by deaf filmmakers as well and different genres and intersectionality so yeah just like terry says this is just one family but i definitely want everyone to see it and i hope they seek out learning more about deaf culture and sign language
0: Well, that brings me, Charlotte, to the work you do, the activism you do. Can you tell us more about that, please?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, So I work as an access consultant, primarily in the film industry. So I work with cinemas and festivals and other organisations on making their events and uh, online content more inclusive for disabled and deaf audiences. I also do some programming. I just founded a new pop-up cinema called Caption This, and I do a bit of film writing as well. So I think my personal perspective as a disabled moviegoer really brings it home for a lot of the people I work with. And I can definitely give that kind of experience of what it's like to go to the cinema and and not be being able to access it. So, yeah.
0: What are the most important issues in terms of accessibility for cinemas?
1: I think um, we're still quite a ways behind in terms of captioned showings and audio described showings. Um, and I think a lot of cinemas need to also be proud, um, of being accessible and communicating that and telling everyone about it. I think a lot of people just want to tick the box and put it to the side when it really should be embedded into everything that we do. So I think more and more accessible screenings is a great starting point and reaching out to the local disability communities as well and getting them involved.
4: Very well said. Terry, how does this tie into the work you do, if at all? It does indeed. So as Associate Director for Inclusion at RNID, one of the things we're looking at are societal barriers towards full inclusion for deaf and hard of hearing people and those with tinnitus. So cinema is one of the areas that we're we're working on at the moment. Um, At the moment, many of the cinemas will only caption films at particular times because what they say is hearing audiences don't want to see captions on their films. And what we are saying, it should be the norm. Everybody should be able to get into a cinema and have access at any time they want to go to the cinema and not just when they decide it's suitable for them. So it fits in very well with what we're doing and we're looking at barriers across all the sectors to make life fully accessible and inclusive for everyone.
0: Bravo to both of you. Now, I want to ask as a personal question, as a critic, as a broadcaster, as a podcaster... Do either of you think there's more that we should be doing? What steps should we be doing, myself, the podcast, to make things more accessible? We
4: would be looking for more representation, actually. It's great that you've got Charlotte on today, but more representation in terms of the communities, the different communities that are going to access what you're doing. Um, In terms of mainstream media, to actually get representation on mainstream media would be fantastic. So things like Eternals, the film that has just come out with uh, Lauren Ridloff in it, where she plays a mainstream character. It's not a deaf film in particular, it's a mainstream film and there's deaf characters in it. So more representation like that would be fantastic. Charlotte?
1: Yeah, so audio transcripts. um, I think you caption your short clips on social media, um, making your social media accessible, because obviously that's a way that we communicate a lot of our um, kind of services, and including podcasts. Um, And I think, yes, um, what Terry says, just inviting more people um, across the kind of disability spectrum and not just relying on the same voice, I guess, having um, a diversity of voices, as we say, we're not all the same. Um, so yeah, I would definitely say accessible social media, and, uh, yeah, more representation in general. Well, we are committed to that. Um, Thank you both
0: so much. Um, It's been such a pleasure talking to you about Coda, about the work you do. Is there anything else you wanted to add in terms of where people can find you, how people can find out more about either of your work? Charlotte, you
1: first. Yeah, um, I have a website called captaincaptions.com. It's a bit of a tongue twister, (laughs) sorry. And um, you can find out more about my pop-up cinema. Um, We have a Twitter account at CaptionThis Sydney.
4: Wonderful. Terry? Yeah, and we have a website too where people can get lots of information about different aspects around teen and loss and it's rnid.org.uk. Wonderful.
0: Well, thank you both so much for joining Girls on Film. It's been a really fun show and great to chat to you and have a great day and hopefully come back and see you soon. Thank you. That was Charlotte Little and Terry Devine. As a podcast, we at Girls on Film are striving to improve our inclusivity and accessibility for deaf and disabled audiences. We're currently working to provide audio transcripts for as many future episodes as possible. Meantime, an audio transcript of this episode will be available to read on our Patreon page. We welcome and encourage feedback from our listeners. If you'd like to get in touch with us, then please reach out on our social media or via email. Email girlsonfilmsocial at hlaagency.co.uk. Girls on Film is an HLA production brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, audio producer Dan Pugsley, assistant producer Shania Pithia and our partner for this episode, Apple TV+. I'm Anna Smith and I was joined by Sean Hader, Amelia Jones, Kerry Devine and Charlotte Little. Thank you, lovely listeners. Stay safe.